Welcome to the Cult of Cinema podcast. Please enjoy the complimentary Kool-Aid and join us as we discuss horror and genre cinema. My name is Caitlin and I'm joined by my lovely co-host Phil. In today's episode, we're going to help you to indoctrinate your friends and loved ones. But first, what did we watch this week, Katie? The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, directed by Emilio Miralia. This synopsis will contain some spoilers, so please skip ahead if you're not in the mood. So, initially released in 1972, this giallo film revolves around two sisters, Evelyn and Kitty. As children, their grandfather tells them that they are supposedly cursed by a hundred-year-old cycle which depicts one sister as the Red Queen and one as the Black Queen. As legend has it, the Black Queen kills the Red Queen, who then comes back from the dead to kill seven times, the last victim being her sister. You confused yet? Uh, yep. Well, you're about to be further. <laughs> um, years later, Kitty kills Evelyn during a fight, and their cousin Francisca helps cover it up. But after the death of their grandfather at the hands of a red-caped woman, ooh, and as the body count starts to pile up around Kitty, she has to find the identity of the murderous Red Queen. Is it really Evelyn back from the dead? One of her family members, perhaps, out for their grandfather's fortune? Or one of the angry naked models who works for the same fashion label as her. Who knows? Phil, what did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, the soundtrack was very solid. It's a total earworm. When we were preparing dinner, just before watching it, we had the DVD, or sorry, the Blu-ray menu on, and it's just play- the theme was just playing on loop, and it's so damn catchy. Catchy enough that I actually want to track it down. I kind of want it as a ringtone. <laughs> do people still do ringtones? I don't know. I never have my phone on anything but vibrates. That's so. true. <laughs> but, you know, still a cool ringtone in maybe 2007. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bring no, back the ringtone, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it was really good, but the the plot is a little bit convoluted. Um, it, it wraps a few things up a little bit too neatly, I find. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of... Uh, surprises that, uh, I don't know. I must say, it did keep me guessing, um, but pretty complicated plot. I really enjoyed this. I had no idea what was going to happen, and I was uh, thoroughly on the journey with Kitty, even as she had killed her sister Evelyn in a fight and uh, had people dying around her. I really wanted to know who the Red Queen was and I really hoped it was Evelyn and it was some kind of supernatural thing but you know unless you watch the movie you'll never know. Um, I think that this is probably one of my favorite giallos uh, gialli outside of Suspiria and I've seen a few now but I think I'd like to still increase my watch load of gialli. Yeah I wouldn't say I'm an expert at all. It's um, it's very stylish um, it's inc- it's very confidently shot, and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Beautiful costumes, beautiful production design, lavish. It was shot in a castle, some of it. Yeah, uh, can't go past the um, production design. But um, just a little warning: if you're not a fan of dubbing, maybe uh, watch the Italian version, like we did. You can um, read the subtitles, and they'll they won't take you out of the experience as much as if you'd maybe watch the English version, and it doesn't quite line up with the ma- mouths. Yeah, I mean the irony of reading something being less um, immersion breaking, but 
it was less disruptive. It really was. It it helped. I mean, there. That's definitely something that you find tough about, for example, Fulci films. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of um, recording the dialogue later and doing ADR, especially in a lot of Italian films. I know it's the done thing, but um, I feel that it, sometimes it takes me out of it. But um, if you have great actors, honestly, you can't tell the difference. Yeah, true pros will always be excellent. Great. But yeah, so it was it was an interesting film. Uh, and we, yeah, we watched the Arrow Films Blu-ray, so if you can track it down, uh, we encourage you to. What was our second film for this week? So uh, another film that we watched, we actually had a friend over who uh, sadly has left these shores. So shout out to Jan. Hey, Jan. Uh, but the film we watched, we actually watched The Wicker Man. And on that bed, there was a girl. And on that girl, there was a man. And from that man, there was a seed. And from that seed, there was a boy. And from that boy, there was a man. And from that man, there was a grave. And from that grave, there grew a tree. So Robin Hardy's 1970s classic. So uh, luckily for us, Jan had not seen it and hadn't had any of it spoiled. Zero spoilers. So we got to enjoy the whole process of discovery as if it was our first time all over again. So that was quite fun. I was super excited to watch his face figure out the twist. (laughs) So good. I mean, because you're like, oh, yeah, I know the Wicker Man. And oh, wait, it actually does have a twist. So, uh, for those who haven't seen it but aren't spoiler-averse, I'll give you a, a, a synopsis. So, in response to a report of a missing child, Sergeant Neil Howie, played by Edward Woodward, arrives on a secluded island, Summer Isle, by seaplane. From the very beginning, the locals obstruct the investigation and somewhat playfully tease the prudish copper. With the landlord's daughter, in a memorable musical number, trying to seduce him trying to lead him into temptation through a wall. Love it. <laughs> with the power of dance. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, fascinating little scene. Uh, eventually, Howie starts to suspect foul play in the case of the missing girl, and while scouring the island for clues, encounters a lot of nudity and sexual abandon before having his worst fears confirmed by the schoolteacher, played by Diane Cialento, or Cialento, I'm not sure, who I was surprised to find out is actually an Australian. Huh, wow. Well, was. Sorry, she she died in 2011, RIP. Uh, but between her and Lord Summerisle, played by the inimitable Christopher Lee in one of my favourite performances by him. RIP Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah, he's dead as well. I thought he'd live forever. That's such a shame. How he discovers that the religion of the island is heathen and pagan. A heathen, conceivably, but not, I hope, an unenlightened. Howie then determines that the missing girl is to be sacrificed to the gods during the May Day celebration in the hopes of securing a bountiful crop. Howie infiltrates the May Day procession as Punch, the fool, before discovering that he has been manipulated and is now trapped. <gasps> Shock horror. And uh, I won't ruin the, the twist. So I'm, I'm a big folk horror fan and this is one of the, the three big classics alongside Blood on Satan's Claw and Witchfinder General, the British trio of the original folk horror films. And I think this is the one everyone knows the most. Yeah, I, I think especially with Christopher Lee being in it, um, he's um, a staple of like the Lord of the Rings and things that um, people have 
like Generation Y and Z will know from compared to say Vincent Price in Witchfinder General. Yeah, and I think also there is some latent association with Christopher Lee as Dracula. People go, oh yeah, isn't that the guy who plays, you know, Dracula? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, not to mention the remake of The Wicker Man, although apparently it's a total I trash fire. I loved it with Nicolas Cage. I thought it was a different interpretation. Also, um, Ellen Burstyn is it and plays um, Lady Summerisle, and I'm all about that. Okay, well I haven't seen it, so I will reserve judgment. Also, uh, Lily Sobuski's in it, and I think she's an underrated um, actress, so okay, get well, into it. I'll give it a crack. Um, I have accidentally seen the bees scene. and that was Did you see him punch a bear in the face? I did not, but now I know that he punches <laughs> a bear in the face. I'm not sure I can um, best Leslie Nielsen bear-hugging a bear, bear-chested oh, in God Day damn. of the Animals, <laughs> but I'm always That's down it. for bear, man-on-bear action. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> So I think this film is getting revisited a lot now because of Midsummer, and um, favorably, I think I think a lot of people prefer this film. Uh, I'm on the fence about that. I really enjoyed Midsummer, but it's undisputably, indisputably, a classic, and one of my faves. I love The Wicker Man, and um, yeah, when we watched Midsummer uh, last year I just really wanted to come back and revisit this but I think it was a good thing that we had a bit of a break between them because it would have been um, a little bit too soon to watch a very similar tale um, but I enjoy them both um, on different planes but I think personally I just really connect to The Wicker Man especially in the way that it's changed in readings over time with um, I think a lot um, of people would back in the day, more empathise with Howie's situation, but now um, I feel myself empathising with Lord Summerisle. Yeah, I think maybe all the uh, the sexual abandon is probably less frightening to modern audiences and, you know, predominantly, maybe not predominantly, but at least more in tune with secular values. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, our friend watched it and he wasn't even convinced it was a horror film. I mean, even as uh, Howie is being burned to death, which I sort of pointed out. But, but um, I mean, his point stands that mostly they're just kind of toying with him and just playing and the atmosphere is quite jovial. And, you know, it's a, it's a pagan... For them, they're not bad people. You know, they don't see themselves as evil and they don't... They're not even portrayed particularly negatively, I must say. Like the... There isn't that much tense atmosphere. It's more from Howie coming into their island and trying to destroy their ways, if anything. He's trying to um, question the values that they hold dear and um, he even desecrates some of their um, religious paraphernalia, which, if anything, makes him the villain. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they do burn him alive. I mean, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, we... Up we, until that point, okay? <laughs> even though we probably share more in common with the uh, residents of Summer Isle, I think we can still empathise with Howie being burned to death. True. And also... Pretty um, hectic. That, <laughs> that lady um, putting a frog in her child's mouth and then taking it out again to right. get rid of the, uh, cr- the croak in her throat. I think we can all agree that's still some whack magic. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple of the scenes that... Um, like the, the hand, the severed hand being used in a spell was pretty cool. That was cool. So yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. 
check it out if you haven't already. Um, I think the Asta does um, screenings of it occasionally and I would recommend seeing it on the big screen for a first watch if po- at all possible. So that's all for what we've watched this week. Next up, our first official segment, How to Make Friends and Indoctrinate People. So, <laughs> if you're like us and you're passionate about horror cinema... Which we are. We are. Uh, you want to share that passion. But if you're like us, you've also met some resistance. So, to that end, we have created a list of film suggestions to help break through that resistance. We've collected the common excuses people often provide and grouped them. We've classified people into types, if you will. So, regardless of the type of resistant person you face, the first step is to get them to agree to sit down and watch a film with you. Some suggested methods include bribery with cake. You could offer to Marie Kondo their life. You could promise to put them first on your organ donor list. I'd threaten to become best friends with their grandma. Any of these are reasonable and ideal. (laughs) I mean, otherwise you could always offer to sit through something of their choice. Um, But we wouldn't want to advocate going to extremes. (laughs) So, a quick note that this segment will contain multiple small spoilers, but it really shouldn't stop you from listening. Go on, spoil yourself. (laughs) So, our first class of resistant person is the person or people who don't like thrills and chills. We're talking about the I don't like to be frightened kind. The I watch films with the lights on kind. So, my first recommendation is the horror comedy mockumentary, What We Do in the Shadows. It's also currently a TV show, but since it's not available legally in Australia, we shall only talk of the film. Directed by Taika Waititi, who also stars, it depicts four vampire housemates and the realities of their existence under one roof in the modern era. I bloody love this film. It expertly crafts mockumentary style with comedy and horror themes. It's a perfect blend of laughs and horror tropes for those who aren't horror inclined. Yeah, I mean, there are very few true scares in it. Um, It does introduce a lot of good horror tropes and the design of many famous vampires. I mean, you have everything from the Salem's Lot, um, almost Nosferatu-ish, I think he's Peter, Peter. Yeah, to uh, interview with a vampire style. Yeah, and everything in between. So you, um, this is like a nice little first step, I think. Perfect. What about you, Phil? My first pick is the third film featuring Ash and the Deadites, Army of Darkness. So Army of Darkness is quite a departure from Evil Dead 1 and 2, where Evil Dead 1 was mostly horror with some comedy, and Evil Dead 2 was a perfect symbiosis of comedy and horror. Army of Darkness is full of slapstick, swashbuckling, sword fights, action and comedy. The horror almost fades out completely, even if the aesthetics and themes are dark and scary. The execution is playful and the tongue is firmly in cheek, so very few people will run screaming from this romp. So it's a really good way to introduce somebody to the genre who might think that it's usually just too scary for them. We, in fact, have had uh, very much success in the past with this with family members, so we invite you to try it out on your loved ones. Indeed. My second pick is Shaun of the Dead. So my fun little intro for this is that I watched this first time with uh, my non-horror fan parents and best friend Liz. We're all really enjoying it until we took a break for some dessert. My mum made strawberry trifle, which is quite chunky and bloody looking. It made it hard for the other three to stomach, but I dug in straight away to both the film and the dessert. 
Um, Edgar Wright, <laughs> Edgar Wright helms the first in the Simon Pegg and Nick Frost Cornetto film trilogy to great style as Effect and Zeal. Plus, there's plenty of British comedy stars dotted throughout for those in the know. Um, at its heart, it's a zombie romantic comedy, a zom rom com, if you will. <laughs> it's a crowd pleaser for sure. So check it out. Share it with your nearest and dearest. Yeah, I feel like this film revitalized zombie films in general. 100%. Um, and I mean, it was the first of a few kind of major horror comedies that came out, but it's definitely one of the best. So my second pick is Beetlejuice. So Beetlejuice is yet another film that blends horror and comedy. And it's pretty fair to say that with its dark themes and body horror, Beetlejuice might gross you out, but it isn't super likely to make an adult scared. I mean, I saw it as a child and there were some spooky bits in it, but I didn't find it too scary. And I think generally people who watch this as kids end up being fans of it. Many scaredy cats are also familiar with uh, Tim Burton already. So this factor alone will help keep the anxiety levels down. I also picked this one over other Tim Burton films such as Sleepy Hollow, which has more actual horror in it, and over say, Edward Scissorhands, which is a bit sappy for me, despite featuring my boy Vinnie Price. Vinnie P. Oh, Vinnie P. Represent. Uh, but really, many Burton films fulfill this requirement of being horror films that aren't that scary and people feel comfortable with it. So you can't go wrong with many of them. Oh, yeah. And I love Winona Ryder in this movie and I love Gina Davis in this movie. Can't yeah. go wrong. The cast is fantastic. It's... Yeah, it's a stellar cast and it's it's very funny and it's still got some really good special effects, in-camera effects. If you're an alt girl or a goth girl and you didn't want to grow up to wear Winona Ryder's red wedding dress in Beetlejuice, where even were you? Living under a rock? Yeah. Style icon. <laughs> uh, my third pick, staying in my British horror comedy realm, is Sightseers. So this is a film... Um, that I think is such a treat. Directed by another one of my favorite directors, Ben Wheatley. It stars and was written by Alice Lowe and Steve Oram. It tells the story of Tina and Chris, a couple who go on a caravan to a sightseeing in the English countryside, but are met with insufferable people who, along the way, they summarily dispatch. The film plays with those little irritations of having to deal with annoying people while on holiday, who you maybe normally wouldn't have to interact with, but instead of just wishing you could cause them some kind of bodily harm, you can watch this film. So very relatable and uh, zero jump scares. Yeah, I think because the killers are the protagonists and in their eyes, yeah, they're, they're maybe doing some reprehensible stuff, but it isn't shot as if it's terribly awful. <laughs> it, it, yeah, amps up the comedy factor rather than the, the horror factor. Yep, love it. So my final pick is James Whale's classic, Frankenstein from 1931. So this film is a must-see horror film as well as just a must-see film in general. But at nearly 100 years old, it's more than likely to make someone uneasy at best or perhaps even laugh rather than be terrified. Uh, it's the only choice on my list that isn't comedic. And that's because I can't really imagine too many people being scared witless of this film. After nearly 100 years of Frankenstein's monster existing everywhere in branding and children's entertainment. But this eerie gothic masterpiece with its iconic creature, Boris Karlov, is a wonderful way to introduce someone to more serious horror and film history without traumatising them. I mean, depending on how you feel about child violence. <laughs> yep. 
But even that is more implied rather than seen. Very true. All right. So the second kind of resistant person that you might have to do battle with believes that horror is too gory. So they think slashes are the be-all and end-all for the horror genre. They may have been ruined for horror by something like Saw or Hostel. So up first is what Phil and I regularly call the spiritual sequel to the first Halloween. That's right, I've picked It Follows. So this is an American supernatural psychological film and it follows Jay, played by Micah Monroe, as she realizes she's picked up an STI that only those who've been infected can see. It can take the form of any person it wants and it will walk towards you until it catches and kills you, but without the audience having to see all that violence. Um, Most of the scares are sound design or score related with the very affecting 80s electronica inspired soundtrack from Disaster Pace forming the backbone of this film. I bloody love this film. It still gives me chills and I will be um, scared like the night after watching this (laughs) thinking someone's coming for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's more the implied threat rather than the actual impact of what will be done to you when it finally catches up and the the dread of something unstoppable and just constantly following you is it's palpable plus this uh soundtrack is great to listen to if you're um into writing i regularly chuck it on when i'm writing a script so my first pick for the gore averse film lover is actually the wicker man which we mentioned earlier A great way to sell this film is that it has Christopher Lee at his very best and that there's not a drop of Kensington gore to be found. (laughs) So, uh, as we mentioned before, although the deviancy from prudish Christian norms might not be quite so shocking to us in 2020 compared to 1973, the atmosphere of smiling menace is fantastic. And as we mentioned before, very few films have such a dramatic end for their protagonist. So you can definitely get someone on board who doesn't like the color red because this gray, blue, and yellow film doesn't really feature any. Doesn't need it. Doesn't need it. My next pick is uh, the Gore Verbinski remake of The Ring. So the premise of a videotape that kills you after seven days um, is spooky and there is zero gore and everyone has kind of heard of The Ring, maybe thought about watching it but think it's a little bit too scary for them maybe too scary but definitely not too gory it's tightly edited well crafted and i'm particularly a fan from um, my memories of trying to desensitize myself as a teenager i was particularly spooked by the horse jumping off the boat scene but uh, upon a rewatch, really did not phase me anyway i love naomi watts and a vengeful ghost so make people watch this film yeah Great horror film that doesn't have any chunks and splatter. No, although your memory might trick you and you think it (coughs) will have that kind in it. It doesn't. It has some pretty good um, corpse effects, but nothing, yeah, nothing splattery. So my next pick is Under the Skin. So on the surface, pun intended, you might expect that a film about ScarJo as a serial killing alien wearing a human flesh suit would have its fair share of gore, but this film is more disturbing and unsettling than it is splattery. The death of the unsuspecting male prey is unconventional, uh, incredibly memorable, one of the effects that of late, because I had only seen it this year, really stuck with me, 
I won't spoil it, but no blood is dropped. The pace and unflinching nudity make this a film for mature cinema lovers, but uh, definitely one that you can show somebody who faints at the sight of blood. Yeah, and uh, you can also tell them that the um, non-actors in this movie didn't recognize ScarJo driving up to them and basically propositioning them, so that's a fun little tidbit. It's a fantastic film. It's slow, so um, again, for mature audiences, I think. Uh, next, we have The Babadook. So I'm representing uh, female Australian horror cinema. Yes, let's take it, ladies. And it's a great pick, full stop. All right, this is a no-gore Aussie horror, uh, excellently written and directed by Jennifer Kent. It stars Essie Davis as a mother dealing with unbearable grief. And although it's classed as a supernatural psychological horror film, it will mostly just put you off ever having children. So use it as contraception if you wish. Yeah, this is a great first date film. especially as a double feature with hereditary Ooh, nice and if you want don't look now no spoilers for people who haven't seen that (laughs) so sticking to the contraception theme my last pick is rosemary's baby so although having a satanic baby spoiler might not be the scariest thing for us modern audiences in fact you can imagine some people actually being down with it The sense of being manipulated and used by those closest to you is as unsettling and upsetting as ever. So gore wasn't required to make me squirm during the quote-unquote dream sequences. Yeah, that's still upsetting to this day. (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's a tough watch and it's uh, in the Me Too movement, it's... It's definitely hard to topical. Yeah, hard to split the artist from their artwork. Oh, and I was thinking just the content. I forgot about Polanski. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so if you can do that, have a watch. If you're not so inclined, by all means, skip this one. Our third kind of resistant person is the film snob. The film snob can be identified by their attitude towards horror. They consider horror to be unintellectual. Unrefined. Trash. Lowbrow. So our suggestions are picked to appeal to their sensibilities. My first pick in this category is Carrie. Why, you ask? Just lure in the film snobs with directed by Brian De Palma and maybe starring Zissy Spacek. Just probably don't include the fact that it's a Stephen King IP. Enough said. Then you can enjoy the reaction to the telekinetic murderous rampage ending. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was actually surprised with this one. I I wasn't aware that Carrie was well regarded amongst film snobs. I think it's the one film title I was asked um, multiple times by different lecturers at film school whether I had checked it out or not. Uh, it seemed to be the only crossover between their film knowledge and horror in terms of um, female protagonists and um, killer female protagonists at that. It's one of my favorite sub-sub-genres, I would say. So um, that's why I think it would lure them in. And so it has does it have anything to do with Brian De Palma? Yeah, Brian De Palma is well looked upon in the film snob community. Well, that's fascinating. Well, I'll have to look more into that. So... My first pick is Let the Right One In. Ooh, good one. Yeah, so not the US remake. So I'm leaning into the film snobbery surrounding subtitles. So got a snob, start with a subtitle. Love it. It's a chilly Scandinavian gothic film. The performances are all wonderful with nuanced characters and some 
truly shocking moments that are executed confidently and stylishly. The evolving and ambiguous relationship between Oscar and Ellie is fascinating. And if you wanted to promote this film as a romantic drama with horror elements, or even just a gothic romantic drama, you really wouldn't be stretching the truth too far. I like that. I will definitely use that as a line. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, how many films are coming out that are in this elevated genre mindset and they try to avoid the, uh, avoid the H word? Yeah. Just embrace it, people. Don't be scared of it. Yeah. I mean, that comes down to how we even define horror, which is a topic for another day, maybe. But... Um, yeah, you could you could get around the H word by describing this as gothic romantic drama. Love it. Uh, my second pick is the French horror film Raw, R-A-W. Uh, Philip and I are big fans of this film. We adore it. It blends art house and drama with horror themes. It's a visceral coming-of-age film set in a veterinary school, but with uh, cannibalism. So maybe just sell it as a coming-of-age art house film set in France with a female lead written and directed by Julia Deconu, and they'll love it. Yeah, there's definitely plenty of cringy moments in there, but if you prime them and set their expectations, then no, there's no way of getting around it. <laughs> they're, they're definitely going to squirm. <laughs> uh, if they have as black a sense of humor as you and I, then maybe they'll think it's a comedy just like we do. Yeah. Well, it is obviously funny. There's enough, you know, coming of age, sexy drama stuff going on as well that, you know, your average, average, <laughs> your your film snob will enjoy it. I um, hope so. I really enjoy this film. Um, but it is a tough watch. And on the topic of tough watches, I also picked a female-led psychological drama, Possession. So Ooh, possession. Possession is upsetting and intense, I think that's safe to say, with a riveting visceral performance from Isabella Jani. This is a, a disorientating psychological drama with themes that cut very deep. Sam Neill is also great, by the way. Um, in fact, both the actors completely destroy themselves and each other through this film. And probably some portion of my soul. I felt like my soul left my body. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> this is another film that blurs horror and relationship drama seamlessly. And it's much more than just a film about a woman that fucks an octopus. But it is also that. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. But we loved it. We saw it on the big screen for our first watch. Yes, we will proudly film snobbery away in that way, in that direction. Um, and we loved it. The cinematography is beautiful. It needs to be seen on a big screen. No okay. matter why. I mean, we mock, but we're we're pretty snobby. Oh, we're so snobby. Even as actually, we would describe ourselves as trash fancy. Yeah, we love that trash fancy. A little bit of trash, a little bit of fancy. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Uh, speaking of trash fancy, my next pick is the Neon Demon. It's like literally the epitome of trash fancy. So um, again, I'm gonna lead by naming the director Nicholas Winning Redfin. Redfin of Drive and Only God Forgives fame. Only this film does not star Ryan Gosling. It has art house overtones. It tells the story of an aspiring model played by indie film darling Elle Fanning and probably just leave it at that. If they're in an art house connoisseur, you could also inform them of the giallo-esque features, but only if they're um, that way inclined. 
You could also mention that it was nominated for the Palm d'Or. Why not? No spoilers here, as you're yet to see it, Phil. Yep, thanks for that. Oh, actually, on that topic, just to wind back to Possession, uh, Isabella Gianni actually won Best Actress at Cannes yes. for Possession. So that's another good way to leave with that one. But sorry, I'll just backtrack. Yep. No worries, back no worries. To, to, yeah, I haven't seen Neon Demon yet. Uh, I've been waiting to see it on the big screen because it uh, apparently it's a film that benefits greatly from that experience. You need the surround sound. You need the big screen. It is um, and visceral experience yeah so I'm, i've heard it's a visual tour de force it is glitter blood what more do you want okay well that's promising so on the topic of visual tour de forces i'm all about the segues right now my last pick for a film snob is beyond the black rainbow so this one's probably my more controversial pick i would say so it's for fans of the 60s and 70s sort of sci-fi aesthetics think kubrick but I hate this phrase, but on LSD, God, it's the most obvious phrase at the moment. <laughs> but uh, it also tunes into saturated horror gems like Suspiria. And it's all from the mind of Panos Cosmatos, who brought us Mandy. And we love Mandy. So I saw this before Mandy, thankfully. And we actually saw it as a double feature again. Tra la la la, look at us. But it was really cool. Uh, although it was a VHS version, so fuck me, it was lo-fi hey i enjoyed the vhs aesthetic and you can't take that away from me (laughs) we got to vote for either 4k or vhs i voted vhs and i I stand by it i did not vote for vhs (laughs) it was it was upsettingly grainy but it was a lot of fun so this is an audio visual tour de force it's not just visual and it's a great choice for your more aesthetically involved friend because it would be fair to say that the action, indeed the plot, comes a very distant second to the style of this film. But this dreamy film is a great entry point for a film snob, as the experimental is blended with hard tropes beautifully. Great pick. I wouldn't have thought of this one off the top of my head, but yeah, great pick. It doesn't get great reviews. Um, it's, it's an unconventional film, but... The film snob is usually okay with things that are a bit experimental and, and push boundaries. I mean, just tell them a bit, it's a bit slow and then they'll contradict you after watching it. <laughs> I think a big portion of this is actually, it was actually something that he filmed for, an, for a thesis or something in art school. It was like an art project. It's seamlessly integrated. Yeah, so there's actually a, a straight up video art part that's just integrated into like a strange tripped out dream sequence and it's fantastic it's 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 a great film i think you could do a great uh double feature with this and under the skin wow that would be very long that would be very slow be very drippy it would goopy (laughs) it would look great but yeah um you would definitely want to have a break in between and just smash it out bring all the snacks <laughs> i would want a, a solid walk in some fresh air between those two films no i'd get in a sleeping bag i wouldn't leave the cinema couldn't make me <laughs> uh, our last kind of resistant person says that horror is by definition a sexist genre which uh, i mean i don't know about by definition 
but uh, it is sometimes sexist. Correct, but so is literally every genre of film. And some probably more so. I'm looking at you, romance films. (laughs) So in the spirit of equality, we've got you covered. Uh, I'm going to start off, because why not? Let's start with Prevenge. That's right, Pregnant Revenge. Written, directed, and starring an eight months pregnant Alice Lowe. That's right, from our favorite sightseers before. The whole film, um, from story through to production, is a very feminist affair. It tackles sexism head-on in the way that the protagonist, Ruth, is routinely dismissed as a threat based on her very pregnant state. I love this. Um, However, that just helps her execute her very poorly laid plans for revenge, culminating in many sad and dismal deaths at her hands. All those stories of glowing, soft, nurturing, and otherwise classically feminine traits known to accompany pregnancy are blown out of the water by this angry, hardened, murderous force of nature in the character of Ruth. Fuck the haters. I love this comedy slasher. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't clear, this is a comedy. Goddamn, goddamn, it's a comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really cool. It's hard to get a hold of and see, at least in Australia. But um, when it is more accessible, get onto it. Support Alice Lowe. She is a genius. Yeah, she's a boss. So my pick is a little bit more mainstream, and I picked Alien. So it's not for nothing that Ellen Ripley is often touted as uh, a very strong feminist character by both sci-fi and horror people. So Ripley, for me, has always struck me as being very much her own person. She can step up to face physical danger, or she can make a small child feel safe. And is frequently the voice of reason flying in the face of goddamn machismo. Oh, yes. <sighs> she won't stand for that. No, sorry. There's an alien hugging someone's face. And she's like, don't let them in. Quarantine. It's fucking part of the rules. That movie should just be called We Should Have Listened to the Women and Minorities. Yeah. Except for Parker, who's, uh, you know, just as tough guy as everyone else. It's true. But yeah, uh, Ripley rules. Everyone knows it. Don't let people forget it. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> I did find it hilarious that we met a really cute little girl the other day at the supermarket and her name was Ripley. And when we congratulated her father on such an excellent choice, he told us that there were three other Ripleys in her grade. And several Ellens. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, keep, so it's Keep doing it. I mean, it's not just me who loves and you know finds this one of the best characters in film great uh my next pick is the love witch directed written produced edited scored production design costume design just imagine that the rest of the roles are also basically her own creation as well it's all by the amazing auteur annabella so this film is lovingly made and a harsh critique of the male gaze it may have some sexploitation and witchcraft um films of the 70s to thank for its look but it's very much a female gaze with which we watch our witch protagonist elaine look for her knight in shining armor it's a beautiful pastiche while also a sly satire of sexist genre tropes what do you think phil yeah this film's really interesting um it possibly needed to just be cut down just a touch nope perfect but it's um yeah fantastic pick to rub someone's face in and say sexist eh what you think about this one eh <laughs> gosh i love it um elaine is such a fantastic protagonist she's looking for love in all the wrong places manages to make men exactly how she wants them and then realizes that's not what she wants at all she just wants a really manly man <laughs> yeah i found elaine 
problematic. I say problematic, but so not, fun. <laughs> not, not from like a, I don't know, like a, a moral standpoint, but I just kind of hated her. No, I, I love her. She was so insipid and then like... She knows what she wants murders. and she goes after it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a very interesting film and um, a really good suggestion. So my pick, my second pick, is The Witch. So in this film, we follow a girl maturing into womanhood and her suffering at the hands of literally everyone that she meets. So it would be fair to say that uh, historical sexism is a theme of this film. Thomason is held in suspicion primarily because of her gender. So there's some debate about how to interpret the end of the film. Spoilers. Um, Some spoilers here. Did Thomason embrace the evil that killed her family? Was she always evil? Or was she, in signing her name and soul away, rejecting a sexist world and embracing the freedom that comes from living and associating with other powerful, transgressive women? No matter how you read it, this is not a film where the female characters are stunted stereotypes or included merely to serve the male gaze. Or was she just trying to get away from her family who were treating her awfully the whole time and that was literally her only way out? Well, yeah, I mean, by the end, she has no family anyway. So exactly. It's it's like a... It's like, go with life. the devil or die. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's many ways of reading it, but none of them, I feel, are disempowering to her. No, she's a great character. Finally, I want to mention another witch, the witch who came from the sea. Great pick. Thanks. Uh, The lead character, Molly, is an alcoholic who has fond memories of her sea captain father and is obsessed with the people she sees on TV. The magical, mystical, and sometimes just downright unintelligible things that tumble from her mouth are roundly ignored or misinterpreted by all the people around her, including her sister, nephews, co-workers, boss, and lovers. The first half of the film is dreamy and eerie filling. Is it all a nightmare or is it real life? Molly is a very unreliable narrator and we're watching her life unfold as she wanders blindly into sadomasochistic threesomes, murder, and then into work. Um, By the end of the film, you come to find out her anger stems from being abused by her father as a child. But the anger she must feel at being almost entirely dismissed by those around her is glossed over as she uses different substances to cope with reality. I found this film really tough because nobody around her actually listens. No one listens to her. Everyone just tells her how perfect she is because she's pretty, she's older than she looks, and that is pretty much all that anybody ever says to her, and she says some really weird stuff, and stuff that's definitely outing her as danger to herself and others, and people just ignore her. They're just like, oh, you're so pretty, you're so perfect. They just really misinterpret anything she has to say and she just seems to like be like a sounding board for people they just say things to her and whatever kooky thing comes out of her mouth they immediately ignore and just assume that's just molly yeah well they just interpret it in such a way that it fits what they want to believe about her what they want to hear back yeah it's a really astute critique of the manic pixie dream girl idea yeah and the silencing of women's voices yeah she really is just Whatever you need her to be. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's killing people. <laughs> it's really, yeah. Love that film. So my final pick, another big one, is Silence of the Lambs. So I feel a bit bad that all yours have been sort of deep cuts and mine have all been pretty, like, 
blockbustery almost, but but you've picked very complex female protagonists, so I am totally down with that. Yeah, and they're the ones who spoke to me at different times in my life. So I mean, Ripley was f- during my teens really important. When I was younger, I really found Clarice Starling really inspiring. Um, she's a total boss, so she's a feminist hero of her time, and uh, I think. For me personally, Silence of the Lambs deals implicitly and explicitly with institutional sexism in in a, a way that few other films have or do. Uh, as a woman in a male-dominated world, Clarice deals with sexual advances, innuendo, assault, and systemic barriers with admirable confidence and poise. So when Jack Crawford, her boss, uses Clarice's gender as an excuse to get rid of some small-town cops. Clarice calls him out on it, telling him that coming from him, an authority figure, such behaviour matters. And as a reasonable human being, Jack Crawford takes us on board, and voila, a feminist issue and message delivered admirably, and it's in one of the most lauded horror films ever. And we don't need tokenism. It's just part of the story. And it's an important part of the story. And it's... It's not shoehorned in because it's the issue of the month. It's legitimately part of the story and we just need more of this. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's great. One of my favourite films and a fantastic film to show people who think that horror is sexist. Perfect. And you know many people who are not really big fans of horror in general and love this movie. So it's an all-round treat. Yeah, and uh, you can always lie and just say it's a psychological thriller, which is, you know, what everyone likes to tell themselves, but it's a goddamn horror film. (laughs) We also have some honourable mentions for each of our um, topics picked, but we will put them on the Facebook page, so please check out our Facebook page for more info. And unfortunately, that's all for today's sermon. Thank you for joining us. So you can write to us at cult of cinema podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at cult of cinema pod or join the discussion with other cultists on facebook at the cult of cinema podcast group if you enjoyed today's episode please leave us a five star rating on whatever platform you're using and if you can spare a few seconds a quick review would be fantastic feedback is always welcome and the ratings and reviews really help us spread the good word so thank you in advance and until next time all, all hail, hail cinema, cinema.